Every year in February, we traditionally do a vision series or some kind of topical series to start us off for the year. Last year, we looked at our mission statement. Uh, this year, I thought we would do a series called A Praying Church. Uh, but as I thought about it, the real vision I actually want for our church this year is, is not so much about new things we need to learn or do or remembering our mission statement or anything like that. I actually want us to focus on what Christ has already done. I want us to think more about his love than our works because nothing feeds, motivates, inspires or propels the church of Jesus Christ forward more than getting a sight of Christ on the cross at Calvary, retelling, rehearing and re-believing the old, old story. Paul Miller, in his excellent new book, A Praying Church, which I was reading to study to do a series on a praying church, talked about don't do a series on a praying church when you read this book. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I'd planned a whole series on a praying church. But he remarks that pastors too often seek to inspire, motivate, and feed the church with more church and not Christ. He tells the experience of three friends he has in Philadelphia, each attending a different megachurch each. Each megachurch decreased in attendance over COVID, and so the pastors all simultaneously, they're not in collusion, thought the way to get people back and re-motivated, re-inspired, re-engaged is if we do a series on church. So each one of those three churches did a series on why you should care about the church. But the result for these three friends of the author even though they're committed Christians, they love their church, is that they actually felt demotivated. They felt a bit more like they were being marketed to. They felt like they were being used as a resource rather than treated as a saint. And he makes this comment, which stopped me in my tracks. These three Christians have been faithful to their churches despite the drop in attendance. All of them have executive marketing experience in their work. What are they reacting to? They are recoiling from their churches, unwittingly feeding people church. You can eat Christ, but you can't eat church. These churches have missed what saints are, spiritual beings who can sustain love only by feeding on Christ. As we set up for another year, church, instead of a vision series on the church or even something we should do and grow in, we are gonna dive back into Romans chapter three, 21 to 26, and feed upon Christ. And as we do, I believe that this paragraph, probably the most important paragraph in all the Bible, will inspire, motivate, encourage, and equip us to live for Him. But not by telling us what to do, by reminding us of what has already been done. As we've said many times, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> and the main thing is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in chapter one, verse 15. He's, he talks to them, even though they're Christians, and he says, I am 
eager to preach the gospel to you, church, also who are in Rome. Why? Well, verse 16, I, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And what he's talking about there is not the power of conversion, though the gospel does convert us to Christ. He's saying the gospel is the power for salvation, end time salvation. The day when Christ returns and you will be found in him, the way you are kept, the way you are protected, the way you stay true to Christ from now until that day is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to focus ourselves as we start another year, as school goes back and years begin on Jesus. So friends, get ready to hear the gospel. Warm your heart to hear the gospel again this morning and get ready to feast upon it and eat Christ. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter three, verse 19 through to 26. We will focus on 22 and 24 as our verses, but please focus on now, Romans 3, 19 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, you can put your hand up and we will get one to you. Otherwise, it will be on the screen using the ESV version. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held, may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, our God and our Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching and the applying of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Australian theologian of the 20th century, Dr. Leon Morris, suggests that that paragraph I just read may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. More important than the Declaration of Independence, 
more important than Harry Potter, Narnia, and even Lord of the Rings, and yes, more important than Love Story by Taylor Swift. John Piper said, I do believe that if I had to die in taking an exam to guess which is the most important paragraph in the Bible, which is such a John Piper sentence, if you know his writings, if I had to die, um, this would be it. And if I was sitting in that exam, I'd look at his and I'd copy this, because I think he's right. Why is this the most important paragraph ever written? Well, it only makes sense if we track back through Paul's argument. You see, Paul, the expert thinker and preacher, has been leading the Romans and us down a trail on a journey to get us to the gold mine of Romans 3, 21 to 26. But to get us there, he's taken us on this journey through dank, dark, caverns and tombs and there's dead bodies everywhere and it's musty and smelly and fearful and terrible. He's taken us on this journey because he wants his readers and all of us to feel and truly appreciate the depths and the horror of our sin and our darkness so that when we emerge out of the cave and into the cavern of this gold mine, this treasure trove, will truly understand it. He's been showing us from chapter 1, verse 18, that God's holy, omnipotent, and righteous wrath is being revealed against all humanity, against Gentiles like you and I, those who are non-Jewish people for our depravity and sin, against Jewish people for relying on their heritage rather than trusting in God. For moralistic people, relying on their own righteousness. And in these categories, and down in these caverns, and at the bottom of this dark cave, we are all meant to see our own tombstone. You're buried there. I'm buried there. We're in that cave, no hope, and only torment awaiting. He draws together his conclusions, no matter what you may think of your own self this morning, this is the conclusion of everyone outside of Christ. Romans 3, 10 to 12, as it is written, none is righteous. In case you were wondering, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Your name is written. Your children's names are written. Your friends' and your family's names are written on tombstones in that dark, dank, deathly cavern. And in case we were thinking there was any hope, 19 to 20 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That is, no one can make an argument for themselves, And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works, 
by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But then, in verse 21 of chapter 3, we turn a corner and the journey enters out and starts to ascend out of this cavernous pit, this horrible, tormentful pit, and we come up into this new reality. We go through an archway and into a cave full of treasure and jewels and wonder. Think Bilbo in The Hobbit, except there's no dragon. It glitters. There's wealth unimaginable. And there's a king who stands in the pathway inviting us in to speak with him before we take the treasure. So the question that Paul is trying to help us all get to the bottom of is, how do we access the plunder? How do we get the treasure? And he's been saying that the treasure is the righteousness of God, being right in God's sight. How can someone who's got a tombstone in the other cave be transferred to this cave? How is it possible? Well, to answer that question is going to take three weeks. Today, we'll start our answer by looking at verses 22 to 24 and the great doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Next week, we will look at verses 24 to 25 and look at the doctrine of redemption and propitiation. We'll see how it's actually Christ's death that makes it possible. And then last week, we will see the justification of God in verses 25 and 26. Each one of these passages gives us a different part of the answer. Each one is crucial and each one is glorious. And although over the next three weeks as we discover it, we are going to do some heavy hitting, some hard work, some thinking. So you're going to have to like wrestle your brains into gear and, and, and think. The real hope for all of this is not that our heads would be filled and we'd have all this information, though that will help. My hope is, is that we would rest in Jesus. This passage is here so that weary sinners, guilty sinners, beleaguered sinners would rest truly in Jesus and only Jesus. That's been the effect of this doctrine upon my soul. That's been the effect of the gospel and bottoming out the gospel for my soul. It has a liberating resting effect, and I want that for all of us. You may know it already, may this remind you. You may not yet know it, you're about to find out. So let's jump in. We have two questions to answer today. What is justification, and how can we be justified? Let's look at point one, question one. What is justification? It's a big shun word. It appears in the text, justified, justified. What does it actually mean? It's actually a very hotly contested question. It's why this passage is the most important passage ever been written because what you believe about justification makes all the difference for eternity. This is a passage where blood has been spilt, literal blood, 
Protestant Reformation. The church was split over this question. Eternal futures, heaven and hell, stand on how we answer this question, so we better get it right. Because understanding justification is crucial to unlocking the actual meaning of the gospel, the power of God for salvation. For Paul, it's the most dominant category of thought when explaining salvation. When Paul wants to talk about how we're saved, when he uses the language of redemption, which we'll see next week, 10 times. He uses the language of reconciliation, five times. He uses the language of propitiation, four times. But he uses the language of justification 229 times. We must understand justification to understand 13 letters of the 27 letters of the New Testament. And in this passage alone, verses 21 to 26, he uses the justify word in different forms, righteous or right or just, justify seven times. It's the dominant theme from Romans 1 to 3, the righteousness of God. And so we must figure out what it really means. And to figure it out, I'm going to take us through three ideas of justification. That's what this word actually means in this passage. Firstly, justification is a declaration. Justification is a declaration. So when you hear that word justification... Think of a legal declaration, a forensic or judicial act. Think courtroom. To justify is to declare someone righteous with respect to the law, to the standard of the law. The opposite of justification is condemnation, to declare someone guilty of breaking the law and therefore worthy of punishment. We see Paul use this language in Romans 8, 33 and 34 together. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So we're in the courtroom. Who's going to bring a charge? In steps God. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is there anyone that can condemn? And he leaves the question unanswered in, in this part because it is God who justifies. So justification declared legally right. Condemnation declared legally wrong, worthy of punishment, worthy of praise. But we have to understand that justification is not just opposite in condemnation. We have to realize that justification is not merely a pardon or a forgiveness of sin. Think uh, the presidential pardon. Uh, if you follow the US news, Donald Trump's been seeking a pardon for some of the things he has done. What that means, and the, every year the president gives pardons out to convicted criminals. Well, what a pardon is, is that you've done a crime, everyone knows you've done a crime, and then a judge or a president says, even though you're guilty of that crime, we won't punish you for it and will clear your record, which is lovely. Like, that, that's great, that's wonderful. That's not what justification is. Justification goes further. That puts you in a neutral state, guiltless with respect to that crime. Justification says you are actually in the right. Condemnation, you are in the wrong. Pardon, you're neutral. Justification, you are in the right. You're vindicated. You are actually declared righteous 
Think about that for a moment. You know God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Would anyone want to stand in a court of law and defend themselves against that law? Have you loved God and neighbor with every part of your being? No one will stand. And yet, the doctrine of justification is, in that court of law, you will be declared righteous or fully committing of all of those laws, fully obedient to all of those laws. That's what justification is. It is a legal declaration. Wayne Grudem, in his great book, Systematic Theology, which our Systematic Theology group started this week, he says this, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven, that's pardoned, and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So it's a declaration. Secondly, we need to understand that justification is external. This passage is, is not an internal passage. This is a law passage. Romans 1 to 3, Paul is being a theological lawyer. He's condemned us of all sin. And now he's bringing us to the courtroom and saying, but actually you are now righteous. But nothing has changed with these sinners internally. It's an external act. This is the difference between the Catholic doctrine of justification and the Protestant doctrine of justification. That's why the church split. Some of us are from Catholic backgrounds. You've been taught a different doctrine of justification. Catholic dogma teaches, taught and still teaches, that justification is a transformative internal action. That justification not only de doesn't declare us righteous, but makes us righteous. What that means is that in Catholic theology, you're justified at baptism, even as an infant. Your sins are wiped away, but then you are infused with righteousness so that you can progressively become more righteous and sort of like bit by bit get closer to being righteous so that God can declare you actually righteous based on your actions, not upon Christ's. It's an internal transformative work that you can never accomplish or never know if you've accomplished in this life. That is not what this text is teaching. Justification is an external, judicial declaration and not an internal, actual transformation. That's other doctrines. The doctrine of regeneration. We are made a new person. That's transformation. The doctrine of sanctification. As we become more and more holy, that's transformation. At glorification, the great doctrine of glorification, that at the end we will have a new body, we will be new creatures, that's transformation. But justification is an external, objective, status declaration, irrespective of your works. The difference between, it's the difference between a surgeon and a judge. A surgeon goes in, removes cancer, grafts skin tissue and cleans you up. That's sanctification, glorification, re uh, regeneration, or Catholic justification. 
The courtroom is the judge making that external, objective justification. We see this in the book of Luke. Um, after Jesus is baptised and he's talking to the people, we see an example of where this word is used just to show that it's an external declaration. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, i.e. they justified God, having been baptised with the baptism of John. Now obviously, you can't make God righteous by your declarative acts. They are declaring something that is already objectively true about God and making a declaration. It's external, not internal. Proverbs 17, 15 says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, if justification was an internal act, it would actually be righteous to declare a wicked person justified because you'd be internally changing them from being wicked to righteous. But God says it's wicked to justify the wicked. So to declare a wicked person righteous is unrighteous in God's sight. So it must be external. It must be not based on internal things. And this really matters because it makes all the difference for your assurance. It makes all the difference for your resting. It makes all the difference for how you think about God and how you view him. Not as this harsh, ever demanding father, but as one who loves you objectively, not subjectively. But that verse brings up a problem. How, how, well, if it's unrighteous for God to declare the wicked righteous, then how can we be declared righteous in God's sight? Isn't that wicked of God to do that? That leads us to the third thing. What is justification? Justification is, now here's a word, an imputative act. There you go, welcome. Imputation, okay, another great, great doctrine. You may be wondering, how can God declare us righteous? And that's going to be a lot of next week. Well, the answer is imputation. Anthony Hokema says, imputation is a legal or judicial term. It means to reckon to the account of another. To count to someone else's account someone else's deeds or money. J.I. Packer de describes it like this. God declares them, believers, to be righteous because he reckons them to be righteous. And he reckons righteousness to them not because he accounts them to have kept his law personally, which would be a false judgment, but because he accounts them to be united to the one who kept it representatively. And that is a true judgment. For Paul, union with Christ is not fancy but fact. The basic fact indeed in Christianity and the doctrine of imputed righteousness is simply Paul's exposition of the forensic aspect of it. Now that might sound a little bit confusing. Let me explain it. What he's saying is that when you put your faith in Christ, you are united to him. You're married to him. And as a result, his righteous standing before God is now your righteous standing before God. It's declared or reckoned or counted to you. What happened on the cross is that your sin was reckoned unto Christ. He who knew no sin became sin. And then his righteous deeds of, 
obedience, loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength for all of his life is reckoned onto your account so that you might become the righteousness of God. Double imputation. Think of it like this. Um, In Adam, his sin is reckoned to us and we're all in Adam. On the cross, our sin is reckoned unto Christ. And then Christ's righteousness is now placed onto us. You could think of it like um, having soiled garments being taken off and then you're clothed in new righteous robes. Or you could think of it as a rich marriage where you come with all the debt and they come with all the riches and there's no prenup and you join in with them and their riches cover all your debts and now you have access to all their riches. That's what imputation is. It was prophesied in Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is a, it's a strange word, imputation. It's a beautiful doctrine. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The church, the bride of Christ is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So what is justification? What's the nature of it? When Paul says that word, justified by his grace, that God may be the just and the justifier, no one will be justified in his sight. What is he saying? He's saying it's a declaration, courtroom, legal, status. It's external, not based on your works, but based on the works of another. And it's an imputation. One the judge takes the account of one and puts it onto your account. And your account of transgression is put onto the other, Jesus Christ. That's what justification means. That's what it is. But the question then is, how can we be justified? How can we access that justification? If there's the possibility that you can literally be declared as righteous as God, so that you can enter into eternal bliss forever, we must understand how we can actually access it. And we can't make this up. We can't, we're not the judge. He's the judge. He tells us how it happens. He sets the rules and we must follow exactly what the judge says. So that leads us to point two, how can we be justified? And we must return to our text. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been revealed or made available or manifested apart from obedience to the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How do we get justified through faith by grace for all who believe. Through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone for all who believe. That 
is the best news you could ever hear. Let's understand it more deeply. The way to receive the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul repeats this two more times. Verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The average Australian I speak to, if they believe at all in an end time judgment where they have to face God, believes in automatic justification. Justification by being a good enough bloke or whatever it is or a universal justification. Of course, everyone is, how could a loving God not allow everyone in to his perfect and holy heaven? Like, come on, fair go, mate. Like, I'm not the worst person in the world, just surely we're all automatically in. And there's an intrinsic human logic to it. It seems like if we were decent people, you know, and we had a heaven, you know, we wouldn't like, you know, we might not like everyone, but we're gonna like, oh, well, I could send you to heaven or hell. Well, I guess I'll send you to heaven. That seems like a decent Aussie thing to do. But that's when we compare our standards to God's standards. It doesn't work. This passage teaches us that there's only one way to obtain justification, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not in God in general. It's not just believing in God. That doesn't justify you. It's not believing that Jesus Christ existed. That does not justify you. The only way to be justified is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior alone. Believing in who Jesus is, the Son of God and fully man, who lived and died and in our place and for our sins, who bore our wrath on the cross, was truly buried in the grave for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven and is coming back. That Jesus Christ, that real person, not a concept, but a person. You have to believe in Him. You have to know Him. You have to rest in Him, not in the doctrine of justification, but in Christ himself, the living being who rules and reigns on the throne. It's, it's him, he's real, amen. It's not faith, this concept, it's faith in an object, him, Jesus. That is what saves. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which was drafted in the 17th century, still stands in 11.2, says, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. I just love that weird turn of phrase, is the alone instrument of justification. It's by grace. It's by grace. It's through faith and it's by grace. It is a gift. You can't, earn it. You can't work for it. You can't get there. This is an alien righteousness that you could never attain to. But God is a merciful and gracious God who wants you to love him and know him and enjoy him forever. And so as a gift, he says, I will make you righteous in my sight. And then as a gift, he gives us eyes of faith to rest upon Christ. All other ways are by works. All other human inventions of religions are by works. The difference between Christianity and all other religions is the difference between ascent and descent, one commentator, Emil Brunner, says. 
In all other religions and ways and philosophies, we are ascending to God, trying through works or speculation or philosophy or practice or ways of thinking to make our way up to Him. But grace is a descent where God comes down and condescends to us and delivers to us the salvation. And it is, as the verse says, for all who believe. That's what Paul has been laboring, Jew and Gentile, all stand condemned, all lack the glory of God, fall short, not so much the idea of like falling short of a high jump bar, but it's actually, it's more of an idea of lacking the glory of God. Like if you are invited to a black tie event and as a dude, you need to wear like a full on tux and everything. And as a lady, you need to wear one of those evening gowns and that's the dress code. And you turn up, even if you turn up in smart casual, sorry, you lack the glory of the black tie event. You're not allowed in. That's what it means to fall short. You don't have the glory needed to be in heaven. And yet, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's given to you as a gift. And it's for all. As I said in the introduction, everyone's name is written in that cave. And everyone you love, their name is written there too. And the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in... Heidelberg, in the Reformation, in the 1500s, 1560 something. How are you right with God? 67, there you go. How are you right with God? This has got to be your answer. This has got to be your answer. How are you right with God? You don't need to know all the technical, but you need to know the heart of it. If you're not a Christian yet here today, or you're trying some other way to get to heaven, this needs to be your answer only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil. Remember, it's objective, not subjective. Nevertheless, Without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift with a believing in the garden Adam and Eve chose to be like God and do it on their own in salvation God has so ordained that salvation is holy by none of our works by none of our actions it is completely a resting and a receiving in the works of God another. John Murray says the differentiating quality of faith is that is the nature and function of faith is to rest completely upon another. It is this resting, confiding, entrusting quality of faith that makes it appropriate to and indeed exhibitive of the nature of justification. And that's where I want us to land. Faith is resting in Jesus. No striving, 
no working, no toiling, no laboring. Rest. Complete rest. Knowing that on that cross, he completed the work the Father had for him. He lived a perfectly righteous life and then shed his blood as a payment for our unrighteous life. And if you, by faith, are united to Christ, God transfers the record of your sin to him and the record of his righteousness to you. And you are now eternally declared righteous in his sight. And that declaration, my friends, can never, ever be overturned. It's done. The court order is in. And therefore, when your conscience accuses you, when your guilt plagues you, when you feel like you're the worst Christian in the room, when you've sinned grievously, when you've walked away, when you haven't been to church, when all these things mount up and all you can think of is your guilt, rest again upon Christ and be reminded that if you have faith in Him, you are justified in God's sight. And remember this. John Piper makes a great statement. Because I've been trying to help us to see it's not, we're talking about the doctrine of justification, but it's to lead us to the person, Jesus Christ. Justification removes our record of sin not just so that we can walk around living however we want and sinning and being like, oh, well, it's fine, I'm justified, it's good, it's slate's clean, I'm Teflon. No, the point of the gospel is this. Justification, John Piper says, is not an end in itself. Neither is the forgiveness of sins or the imputation of righteousness. Neither is the escape from hell or entrance into heaven or freedom from disease or liberation from bondage or eternal life or justice or mercy or the beauties of a pain-free world. None of these facets of the gospel diamond is the chief good or the highest goal of the gospel. Only one thing is seeing and savoring God himself. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And so our resting in Christ for salvation ought to lead us to rejoicing in Christ as our friend, our guide, our protector, our all in all. So friends, the way to access this gold mine, and there is a gold mine, God is a gold mine, it's through and only through Jesus Christ. You put your faith in him and you are declared righteous in his sight. It's external to you, it's not based on your works, it's because of your works that you're in the bad position in the first place. It's an imputation declared or reckoned onto your account. 
through faith in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of Jesus Christ alone, for all who believe, for the joy, the liberating, wonderful joy of being with God forever in heaven. Would you rest in him afresh or come to him for the first time and receive this gift? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What type of God would come after rebels? What type of God would sacrifice himself and shed the precious blood of his son and condemn him and hate him upon that cross and torment him so that rebels could be justified and declared eternally and legally Righteous with not just a human righteousness, but the very holy, eternal righteousness of you. Who are you, O Lord? How great you are. And we thank you that through the weakest of all manners, we come to you resting, falling, limping, staggering and stumbling into your arms. And that you receive us and enter and welcome us to enter into eternal bliss and joy. And would we have a taste of that now? Would you liberate sinners from their guilty consciences as they come to Christ? For all who are weary and heavy laden, may they come to Christ and find rest today. And may it have a spontaneously joyful effect upon ourselves. May we now sing as the redeemed. May we sing as those who know, I really am justified. It's true, it's done, it's final. Would you give us that gift now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.